Um, I, I'm, I'm honored that, you know, Stephen, first of all, listens to the voice of the Lord enough to say, I feel like God wants me to share my story, not because my story is one of great victory, but because I want to be part of a community that, that lives in vulnerability with each other. Like, it's a picture that we've seen all through Acts. I mean, for 52 weeks, we have looked at this book of the birth and sort of movement of the church, and it's just dripping with vulnerability. And actually what we're going to see over these next two weeks are really some of this vulnerability that's just sort of dripping. Paul is going to have this really intense and real conversation with the elders in Ephesus, and he's going to basically look them all in the eye. We'll look at this part next week and say, I'm never going to see you again. And it's going to break his heart, and you get this sense that they just sort of share deep life. And so um, it's kind of fitting that we're there, and we want to be better about sharing those stories, right? They don't have to have happy endings. They don't have to end perfectly. I mean, as a church, we love the re- you know redemption story. We love the story of the person that gets up and goes, my life was a train wreck, uh, but God fixed it, and now it's better, and everybody claps and is excited. But we really don't know what to do with the story of the broken, of the person that's still dealing with deep doubt, deep fear, deep resentment, deep anger, and living in a place of vulnerability. We can say these things out loud and say, you know, I'm not through all this, but I, I, I want to believe in a God that is bigger than I am is, uh, is very real. So we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. One more announcement to sort of share, and then we're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, then we're going to uh, sort of kind of move into this little next two-week window. But we've got a really exciting opportunity coming up in July for those of you that uh, have known uh, our friends in Guatemala, Brandon and Jenny Scott, they uh, are built, have lived there for 10 years, been missionaries there. They are, have believed the Lord is releasing them from Guatemala, and we've been in long conversations. And they're going to be moving to Oklahoma City and joining our team here. Brandon's going to come on board as really a pastor, but really they're living as missionaries. So they're feeling called to come move into the area of Oklahoma City and live amongst marginalized people, um, to live as missionaries, to model missionary li- missional living. Um, they are going to be here in July living as sort of missionaries in our midst. Brandon will be serving in a, some pastoral roles, but really they're going to be living amongst us and modeling missional life and pushing us to think differently about what it means to go and be a part of church. And, and we're super excited about that because as we grow and develop, the last thing we want to do is grow and develop into a room full of people that, that check in and punch in on a Sunday and, and check out and, as Stephen said, live with this entitlement and deal with the things on the top of the pyramid. Like The call of a Christ follower is really messy and it's really complicated and it calls us to live and exist out there and the cracks and crevices of culture that aren't always, as we'll see today, convenient that aren't always easy and that sometimes are really hard, but we exist to live in that place. And, and I long for partnership that pushes us, myself included, as a church to live in these categories. And so Brandon and Jenny and their four kids are going to be joining us in July. You'll hear a lot of, more a lot about that. The reason we're sort of talking about it this morning is because they've been working with their supporters, um, kind of getting things transitioned, and they've made some announcements, and so we're excited about that. We'll be talking a lot about it over the next few months, but it's really an exciting time for our church because we have the opportunity to not only partner with them, but to bring some, a family in to live and do life with us, and, and I'm really looking forward to it as well. I've known Brandon for, and Jenny for 20 years, and so I'm excited about that. Um, it's really interesting what God is doing in this church. Uh, we know it's a pivotal time. We knew moving out of our space on 49th Street would be a pivotal time, but there's just a lot going on that we're really excited about. This morning, we're going to see 
a lot going on in the life of Paul. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> and we're going to divide it into two weeks. We'll spend the majority of it um, next week. But I want to introduce us to it, to, uh, to this sort of beginning of this speech he's going to make to these Ephesian elders this morning. Um, so those of you that were this last week, or you know, maybe you just sort of understand and know your church calendar, we are into week two uh, in the season of Lent. So this is actually a really important time in the life of, of a church and in the church calendar. Uh, Lent is the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. It's traditionally a time that focuses our hearts and our lives towards the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Depending on what your tradition is and where you were raised, you were probably told, you know, you're supposed to give things up, you're supposed to do different things for Lent. Really, of course, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, but what Lent should do is it should push us towards the cross, right? It's that moment in the church calendar in which we get to focus on what is coming, uh, both through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, we're keeping that in mind as we go through this, these weeks, that our focus is on the cross, the ultimate tool that led Jesus to bring us life, the single greatest movement in all of human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're right in the middle of that. We talked a little bit about it last week. We're week 52 in the book of Acts. We've gone through every single word. We haven't missed one. Uh, we've looked at them all, and we are wrapping up the end of Paul's third missionary journey. From this point on, everything in the book is going to be about Paul getting to Rome, which is really his last sort of travel where he will spend the rest, essentially, of his days. And these next seven chapters are going to be focused on some of the most grueling and difficult hardship that Paul's ever faced. And it's going to call us to ask a lot of questions about ourselves, which is, what if following Jesus leads me to those difficult places, both physically and emotionally and all those things tied up together? And this morning, we're going to begin to see the, the kind of beginning movement of that. So the third missionary journey has come to a close. Paul's wrapped up two and a half years of mission and life and preaching in Ephesus. He has spent every day preaching from a rented uh, lecture hall that he had there in Ephesus, and he has shared the gospel at every moment. And Acts 19 says that Paul preached every day in the entire area of Asia Minor had heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul begins to feel called to go to Jerusalem. And this is going to be a big deal, and I'll tell you why today. But he begins to feel called to go to Jerusalem, and so he does that by going the wrong direction for about 1,500 miles. He travels to Macedonia, where he spends time with uh, the churches in Thessalonica and Berea. He travels to Achaia, where he spends time with Athens and churches in Athens and Corinth. And he begins to spend time with those churches. And he wraps up that this time, and we saw last week that he landed in a town called Troas, where Luke records this sort of miraculous moment, well, really a miraculous moment where a young boy falls out of a window uh, while Paul was droning and preaching on and on, and Paul runs down the stairs, throws himself, and God raises this kid from the dead. And it was very cool, very great moment, and we sort of explored that in depth. Um, last week. Well, Paul's going to set sail from there. He's actually going to leave there by foot, but end up setting sail from there, and he's going to end up just south of Ephesus. So if you've got your Bible on his trek back to Jerusalem, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 20, um, and we're going to go through those first few verses um, this morning with these questions in mind. What would it look like if Jesus calls me or the Holy Spirit uh, compels me 
to live in a difficult place, to embrace things that defy conventional wisdom? What is it that motivates and pushes my life? So let's, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we will go through those verses together. <clears throat> Lord, I love this church, not because it is right or perfect or, well, really anything except real. Lord, it is made up of people that are honest. It is made up of people that are broken. It is made up of people that are liars. It is made up of people that are sad. It is made up of people that are joyful. It is made up of people that have it all figured out and people that have nothing figured out. It is made up of the the deepest sinners and it is made up of those, Father, who are trying to walk with you. We are a collection of broken people. And God, I thank you for voices like Stevens who are willing to stand up and not just say things that are easy, but to just say, I trust you, God, even when it's really, really hard. Take a moment in your own heart and and just, however simple this needs to be this morning, just ask the Lord to teach you something. Uh, In these short verses, and we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning, but just, God, teach me something this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach their heart. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified, exalted, and lifted up. Lord, this is your word. It is true. It is life-changing. And we ask that you would use it to speak directly to our hearts. We know that an encounter with your words, an encounter with you, and we trust that, Lord. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his holy and perfect name that we pray. Amen. So we're picking up this morning, Eutychus, uh, that young boy, has fallen out of the window. Paul was preaching at two sermons, one from about sunset to midnight, and then right around midnight in this upper room filled with sort of stuffy oil-burning lamps, this young boy somewhere in the ages of about 8 to 14 named Eutychus falls out of a third-story window and dies in the street right in the middle of this sort of worship service, actually the first ever recorded Sunday worship service in Scripture. Paul and everybody races downstairs. Paul throws himself on this young boy in a manner that we see both Elijah and Elijah do in the Old Testament, throw them, throws himself on this young boy and says, hey, listen, don't be alarmed. He's still alive. God does a miraculous movement. The boy is uh, revived. He was dead. He's alive. Everybody celebrates. They go upstairs, and Paul preaches for six hours. And then at daylight, he decides it's time to leave. And he is in process of getting back to Jerusalem. So he leaves uh, um, Troas, and we're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 20, and we're going to read down through 24 this morning. Excuse me. So we went ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to make, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made arrangements before, and he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived in Chios, and the day after that, we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. 
And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day, I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Though I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jew and Greek that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So like last week, the first five verses here are really transition verses. They exist to get us from one place to another. And in this case, they exist to get us from the city of Troas to the city of, of uh, Miletus, right, which is a, a Greek city about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And it's not really all that important, but it would have been important to a Roman reader because it's kind of fascinating. I mean, Paul leaves Troas by foot and walks 20 miles to this town of Asos. And he gets there, and he sent his companions ahead by boat. Nobody really knows why uh, Paul chose to walk. Some have speculated that because he was about to go into this really challenging part of his life as he heads back to Jerusalem, and, and Paul knows something is not right, that he just spent some time alone. It's all speculation. But by any means, he walks there, and then he boards the boat with uh, all of his companions, and they make several stops, right? They stop in Mytilene, they stop in Samos, they stop in Chios. They make these stops along the way, and they finally arrive in this port city south of Ephesus by about 30 miles. Now, a Roman reader might have found this interesting because you have to sort of sail this way in the Aegean Sea. In the summer, the winds blew during the day, but at night they were dead still, so you couldn't sail a boat in the evening. And plus, with all these islands and narrow channels, it was actually really dangerous. And so if you were a Roman reading this, it might make more sense. But to us, it gets us from Troas to this city south of Ephesus. And it tells us, Luke tells us that that Paul intentionally bypassed Ephesus. Now keep this in mind. Paul had spent two and a half years in Ephesus. Ephesus was just inside the coast of Asia Minor. He had spent two and a half years there preaching every day. In fact, everybody in Asia Minor, as we learned in, in chapter 19, had heard about the grace of God. So Paul, when he felt called to leave, spends about eight or nine months traveling all the way up through uh, you know, Macedonia and Achaia, like we talked about, going to all these different cities. And he comes back on his way to Jerusalem, and instead of stopping in Ephesus, he sails past it and stops 30 miles away. And Luke kind of tells us why. He tells us that Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. So Paul's actually in a hurry. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. If he'd have stopped in Ephesus, imagine what would have happened. How many people, if you spend two and a half years someplace preaching the gospel every day, how many people do you have to see, right? Those of you that, that maybe go home for a period of time, if you don't live here, you know that if you just go home, there's like people you got to call. Well, I mean, imagine if you're Paul, right? I mean, he's thinking, there's no way I can get out of here if I go to Ephesus because I'll need to spend time with these people that I love. And he loved the people in Ephesus. So he misses Ephesus and he stops. But he's got this really important stop he has to make because he still has instructions for the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he's essentially about to hand his entire ministry of Asia Minor off to them. And it's going to be very evident next week 
how emotional this is. But he lands in this city, right? And then he sends word to the elders in the church of Ephesus to come down and meet him in Miletus. So come down and meet me. He sends a messenger up there. They walk 30 miles. They get the elders, and they come down. Now, not much is known about this group of, of guys individually. We know that as a, a group, they were over all the house churches in the city. So Ephesus was a big city, and the church didn't meet like we meet. Remember, the church doesn't gather in a giant auditorium and, and have a bunch of videos and sing a bunch of songs and spend an hour together. They met in small clusters or home movements. They met in people's houses, much like what we saw in Troas. They met in third-story rooms with burning oil lamps, and they shared the letters that Paul had written. They shared words the elders taught. They sang. They shared food. They shared life. And each of those movements, those clusters, a little house church, was a part of the bigger church in Ephesus, right? Much the way our little particular church is a part of the bigger church of Jesus Christ, right? We become very inwardly focused, but if you really look at this model, this is what the church is called to be, particular bodies gathered together, sharing and doing life, a part of something much bigger than themselves. We know the elders were a part or were leading these house church movements. They were in charge of the church in Ephesus. And we know that, um, that Paul gives them really three names over the next 14 verses. He's going to call them elders. He's going to call them overseers. He's going to call them shepherds slash pastors, depending on how you translate that uh, that word. But they all really mean the same thing. They mean that they were the ones that were in charge, the protection and the safeguarding of the church in Ephesus. And their role was shepherding these new believers into a life that followed Jesus. It was the role and is the role of an elder. The role of an elder is not a business administrator for the church which signs checks and makes sure rent gets paid. That's what we've turned it into, right? We've turned the role of elder in our churches into some kind of business role in which they sit around in a room and they look at each other and they say, what do we need to do to make sure the church doesn't fail, right? But really the role of an elder, if you really want to explore it in Scripture, and we can do this at a later time, was the role of a shepherd. It was a teacher and it was protecting the flock, right, from heresy. It was a theological role. It was a protection role because heresy was very real and it was infiltrating the church at every corner. People were coming in going, you don't really need to believe in Jesus, right? It's Jesus and whatever. Like, yes, you believe in Jesus. He's great. But it's also about knowledge. It's about wisdom. It's about action. It's about circumcision. It's about Jesus and making sure you do all the right things. And the elder's role was to protect the church from heresy, to teach correctly, and to set up standards by which the church would not fall to the world. And they led and they taught by example. And Paul draws them together because his life is about to change. And it's about to change dramatically, and he knows it. So they wander in from, and this is actually the only recorded, just those of you that care, the only recorded speech in all of Acts that is just to believers, and really mature believers at that. Every other speech recorded in the book of Acts has got non-believers in the audience. Well, this is the only speech we have that is addressed to this group of mature believers. And Paul is going to be very real and very authentic with them. Because Paul knows things are about to change, about to change dramatically for him. And we don't know how he has this sense. Maybe he's heard words, but he knows that his life is about to change in a really challenging, difficult way. And we're going to see next week that this becomes a very emotional moment for this group 
of people. Well, Paul calls them together, right? And he says, listen, um, they show up and he says, you know how I lived, right? I, I, I was with you for two and a half years. You saw my life. You know how I lived in verse 18. The whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with humility and with tears. I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. But I've taught publicly and I've gone door to door and I declared to both Jews and Greeks, they must turn to God. So essentially he says, listen, you've seen my life. Guys, look, you've seen me. You know me. What I'm getting ready to do is hand all of this off to you. What I have done, I have done publicly. My life has been very visible. I have served the Lord with two main things, humility and tears. Humility that says, listen, it's not about me. It's about making Jesus famous, right? It's about God's glory, not my own glory. And I have served the Lord with tears, now, these tears are very real. We've actually seen them throughout the book. Now, Paul's referring to his time in Ephesus, but we've seen Paul have them throughout the book. We've seen the frustrations. We've seen him be thrown in jail. We've seen him nearly killed. We saw that moment in Athens some eight weeks ago where he was so distraught after spending time in the Areopagus that when he showed up in Corinth, his heart was shattered, and he was lonely, and he was broken. He has served the Lord with tears. And tears aren't always of joy, right? Sometimes tears are of, God, I don't understand where you are. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why this is happening to me. But I've served the Lord with humility, and I've served the word, Lord with tears. He goes, and, and I have preached, I haven't hesitated to preach to you anything that I thought would be helpful. Anything I thought would encourage you. I've gone door to door to door in every house, and I have proclaimed to everyone, Jew or Greek, about the goodness and grace of God. Now, Paul's saying this not because he's trying to pat himself on the back in front of a bunch of people saying, look at all the great things I've done. This is an intimate moment, probably with about four to eight guys that he has discipled and he has appointed into leadership roles. And he's saying, listen to my heart. I have laid it out. I have nothing left. And this is about to be yours. He goes on to say this. You've heard how I've served. You've actually seen it, right? But I got to tell you what's coming next. And this is where we're going to spend a few minutes this morning. And now, right now, in this moment, gathered with you, I've been compelled by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there, but I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are awaiting me. Now, we don't know what's happening, but somewhere behind the scenes, Paul is getting the sense that this move to Jerusalem is a dangerous one. Every city Paul was going to, the uh, aggressive tide of the Jewish leaders was, was getting stronger and stronger. Everywhere he was going, he was facing severe opposition, right? He's facing all kinds of things. So going back to Jerusalem, sort of the the kind of the hotbed of that activity, he knew was going to be most likely life-threatening. In fact, in 21, chapter 21, we're going to see a prophet by the name of Agabus basically tell Paul, saying, listen, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, and you're going to be arrested, and you're going to be handed over into the Gentiles and basically put away. I mean, he tells him that. So Paul knows, although he doesn't know that scenario, he knows that something is happening. And he actually looks at him and he says, 
I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit, which is sort of this irresistible, powerful calling to go to Jerusalem, and I don't know what's going to be there. Now, Paul's been to Jerusalem a hundred times, but something's different. And he knows that something is waiting for him there that he can't predict, but he, know, he knows it's not going to be good. He goes, look, I don't know what it is, but I will tell you this. Every time I show up in a city, you know what the Holy Spirit tells my heart? You know what's here for you, Paul? Hardship prison. Welcome. This is every time I show up in a place. So what do you think is going to happen when I show up in Jerusalem where everybody in the city wants me dead? Yet I am compelled. I am irresistibly moved by God to go there. In chapter 21, in a few weeks, we're going to see an entire group of people try and talk Paul out of it. But he is compelled by the Holy Spirit. He's looking at these guys going, Essentially, and we'll see next week, he's looking at him saying, I will never see you again. And he's saying, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to be there, but it's not going to be good. Every time I go to a city, the Spirit tells me that hardship's waiting, prison's waiting. You know what's waiting in Jerusalem is probably worse. But I've got this irresistible calling to go. And he says this, very powerful, very famous verse at the end of this, or the end of this first part of the speech. He says, however... I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, Paul's going to explain this out in detail in the next few verses. We're going to really look at it next week. But there's these two verses have got some things in there that really just, I really long for to be my words, like I wish they were. But we see some things in his speech, his conversation with these elders that are very real um, and very, very powerful. And essentially, he starts off by saying, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit and not by conventional wisdom. So the Holy Spirit is calling me to go to Jerusalem, but it doesn't make any sense, right? Because Jerusalem is the place where danger waits for me. I know it's there. I actually know it's there. Because everywhere I go, there's danger waiting for me, and that place is 10 times worse And everybody's been trying to talk me out of it, and we're going to see in the weeks to come, everybody's going to try and talk me out of it again. It defies all conventional wisdom. It doesn't make sense, right? Why go to the place that's so difficult? Why return to a relationship that burned me so bad before? Why go back to the place that all of my hurt or my struggle resides in? Because sometimes following Jesus defies conventional wisdom. Forgiveness defies conventional wisdom, right? Because conventional wisdom from a worldly perspective tells us that if somebody wrongs you, cut them out. Walk out. If they do something to betray you, right, hey, they'll get what's coming to them. When you read the Bible, there's a different perspective there, right? Forgiveness. How often? Seven times? 77 times seven times? We forgive people. Why? Because we have been forgiven by Jesus. If you read scripture, following Jesus often leads us to the places that defy our heart's wisdom. We don't want to go there because we know emotionally what that means, yet that's the place that God leads us. God will always lead you to the places that you are trying so desperately to avoid, and it's usually emotional more than physical. 
I don't want to deal with that part of my heart that hates who I am, that part of my heart that looks in the mirror and is disgusted by what I see. Even though God calls me redeemed and beautiful, God is going to continue to lead you there because it defies all conventional wisdom. Because it's easier just to create your own control issues. But God is going to say, no, I want you to understand who I say you are. I want to lead you to the places that you are petrified of going to, to show you that I am God. Now here's the thing. That doesn't mean it always ends well. Paul actually knew that it was going to get harder, not easier. So he looks at this group of elders and he goes, I know I'm called to go and deal with the people in Jerusalem. I got to deal with the leaders there. But here's what I do know. It is not going to be easier. I'm not going to get there and God's going to go, you know what, Paul? I worked it all out. It's perfect, man. You're good. I greased every wheel healer. Now there's a big parade and everybody's excited you're here. That's not what happens at all. Actually, what happens is Paul does get arrested. He does get arrested by the Jewish. They hand him over to the Gentiles and he spends a huge number of years of his life in a cage being bounced around on his way up to Rome to spend time in prison where ultimately he's going to die. This is what Paul's walking into. God doesn't make it easier with unicorns and rainbows, right? It gets more complicated. But he is compelled by God to deal with it and to walk into it. See, following Jesus for us, we think or we hope that when we say yes, it gets easier. That that part of forgiveness that we don't want to deal with, that issue that I have in my heart, that God will work it all out and work it all out according to what I want. God is always in the business of working it out. Just not according to your desires. Following Jesus is actually sometimes really, really difficult. And it leads us to places that are really, really difficult. And oftentimes it leads us to places where things are very unclear. You are not reading scripture if you think that the Bible teaches us that God will lay out all the plans before he calls us to go. All through scripture, God compels people to go where there are unknown realities. Abraham, get up and go to the country I'm leading you. No idea where that is, no idea what that looks like. Abraham has to pack up his whole life, right? Noah, build an ark, right? Blinds Paul on the road to Damascus. Looks at the disciples, come and follow me, drop your nets, I'll make you fishers of men. No description, no explanation, no clarity, no promise how the financial end is going to work out, no promise how it's going to deal with your parents when they realize that you did whatever it is that you walked away from, no promise of how it's all going to happen, but only the compelling voice to go to Jerusalem where I'm sending you. Here's the tension. We want to know the outcome, and God wants us to know him. That will forever be the tension of our Christian life. We want to know the results before we go, and God wants us to know him. He always withholds information from us so that we will seek him more intently. God is concerned with your relationship with him and revealing himself to you. That's the point of the journey in the first place. God doesn't need you to solve whatever the problem is. God could do it with whatever he wanted to do. He could snap, he could move, he could sneeze and heal the broken. But God wants to use us and invites us into this process. And those instructions are often unclear. And so we spend years waiting on God to clarify what God is intentionally not clarifying. We ask everybody around us to pray for us. Please, 
Pray for me. Pray that we're, you know, we're going to think about doing this. When we know that God has already compelled us to it. The praying is our way of delaying what God has already called us to so that we'll feel a little bit better about going. God has already called you to forgive that person. There's no need to pray over it. Right? God has already told you that everything in your life, from your relationships to your money, is his. It belongs to him, and we are stewards of it. So when he compels you to release it, release it. We don't have to spend six months deliberating on the wise. Because it's in the middle of the releasing, in the middle of the going, that we discover the beauty and amazing part of the relationship with the Lord. It's where he shows up in the middle and says, I was here all along. It's the guys on the road to Emmaus that have left the, the resurrection and had no clue what had happened to their risen Lord. They didn't know. They just heard the rumors, and their souls were downcast, and they were leaving Jerusalem the day of Easter, and they're broken and downhearted. And Jesus says, what's wrong? And they're going, are you an idiot? Are you the only one that doesn't know? Like everything that we had hoped is broken. The guy that we had hoped would reestablish our entire nation as a political power is gone. And what is more, we can't even find his body. And Jesus walks with them as they're angry and frustrated. And it wasn't until the end of that walk where they showed up in Emmaus that God revealed himself. And you know what their response was? He was with us all along. Because it's in the movements, in the journeys, right, where we discover this incredible relationship with God. It's not in the results. The results are God's way of being God. So here's Paul laying this on this group of elders, saying, I don't know. It's really unclear. I know it's going to be really hard, and I know it makes no sense. But I'm irresistibly compelled to go. And it's going to cost me my relationship with all of you because I'll never see you again. And then he ends with this. Well, actually, he begins with this because we're going to see where he goes next week. He says this, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. All right, my life's not mine. I exist because of God. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So he says, listen, don't feel bad for me. Like, my whole life is not mine, right? My life is worth nothing. I really have two things that I desire that sort of drive me. And one is I want to finish the race. And two, I don't just want to complete it, but I want to complete the task that God has given me. And he's called me to travel all over the world preaching the gospel, and I want to do that even if it leads me to the one place I don't want to go. You know, Paul associated the Christian life with a race all through Scripture, all through his letters. He wrote it to the Ephesians. He talked about how our faith, our walk with the Lord was like a race. It, we have to race with purpose. It takes preparation. It takes labor, and it takes a goal in mind. And we press on, and we press on, and we press on, even in the middle of hardships and struggles and fears and unknown answers. It would have made a ton of sense to the Greeks because they were so familiar with this idea of racing and athletic movements but if you look at that metaphor, right, and not just for the sports person, but for the metaphor is so real. Because the following of Christ is really like that. It takes preparation. It takes time in the Word. It takes the surrendering of myself and, and training my life to deny what it wants, which is comfort and safety and security and things for me. 
whether that's respect or stuff, right, trains me to deny those things, to say, God, not what I want, but what you want. And it's going to take laboring along the way. If you've ever really run, those of you that are marathoners or whatever, like, awesome. But if you ever really run in the middle of just wanted to quit, there are moments in our lives following Jesus where we just say, I mean, really? If I face another setback, like, I'm just going to cuss. Like, I'm just so mad. Like, why do I doubt? Are you even real? Like, I'm not allowed to say those things out loud, right? We're petrified to say them in our Christian circles, but they echo in our minds. God, why does this keep happening? I want to be done. I don't want to deal with one more thing that goes wrong. Life is a race. deals with all kinds of obstacles and hurdles. But you can't quit. That's what Paul's saying. He's going, it's going to be this movement of labor. And you know why? Because there is a goal. And in Philippians, he tells the church in Philippi, he says that goal, right, is actually a person. That goal is not a ribbon. It's not a crown. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what drives my life? To get to him. Not because he's not already with me, but because one day I will stand or I will fall in his glorious presence. And that's what Stephen was saying. He's saying, no matter what, however this thing ends, I get to be there. That's the goal. And that's what he's telling this group of elders. He's going, listen, my life is worth nothing to me if I can finish, but not just finish, but complete that task and finish at the goal, which is him. What drives your life? What are you driven by? Work? Accomplishments? Goals. I meet more people that are driven by a financial number so that they can retire and everything they go has goes into that movement. Is it a career? Is it school? Are you telling yourself that if I just buckle down for these four years of med school and do all this, then I'll come out the other side and I'll really walk with the Lord? Driven by your own goals and own desires? God never calls us to put that race to the side while we pursue our own first. Never. He always calls us to put all of our desires to the side and pursue him. Because he is the goal. This race is going to cost Paul his life. It's going to cost him his freedom. And he is going to go through some of the most horrific and difficult challenges over the next seven chapters that we will ever see. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to nearly starve. He's going to get bit by snakes. He's going to be beaten multiple times. Also, he could go to a place where he sits in prison waiting for years. Paul's goal, my life is worth nothing. I want to end there with him in his presence. What is the movement of your life? Sometimes following Jesus calls us to unconventional things. Rarely clear. Sometimes it's really hard. But if we're driven by that goal and not our own, there is glory in the journey that outweighs everything. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, the timeless truth of Scripture, that even in the middle of our sometimes lack of understanding, you never move. You never move. You are as consistent as anything. There is nothing that is more consistent than you. 
Lord, the truth is that I deal with a lot of inconsistencies in my life. There are days where I love you and days where I'm mad at you. There are days where I will follow you with everything I have and days where I don't want to do anything but serve myself. There are days where I have great courage and days where I live in desperate fear and anxiety. My life is tossed back and forth between these things, and I hate it. I want to be someone who longs to say those words, like I wish those words were mine. However, my life is worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I want those words to be mine. Lord, as we sit here as a church, I want those words to be ours. I want us to say, God, our lives don't matter. You are what matters. Let us run the race, your race, not our own, not the one where we beat our bodies and flail our arms in the air and run for things that don't matter, but God, the one where we race for the thing that outweighs all things, that is you, a relationship with you by which we trust you. And the goal is just simply to be in your presence. God, I deeply believe that you work those things out. Not always easy, not always convenient, but you work them out for your glory. So God, help us be a church where we choose your glory over our convenience. And as we close our time in worship, echo those truths in our hearts. Push our, push our hearts to say those words. However, I consider my life worth nothing. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.